Hello everyone and welcome to the next episode of the Disclosure Podcast. I hope that you're all doing well and I hope that you're safe still. It's been a strange period of time, hasn't it, the past couple of weeks as we've heard a lot more conversation about lockdowns ending or not ending but being eased and what that might look like. I know that in the US there's obviously been a a lot of talk about opening up the country again and we're seeing that in Europe as well. In the UK we're, we're kind of entering into the next phase, although I do have reservations about what this will look like um, in terms of the number of people becoming infected and and ultimately dying. I think it's going to be a very interesting few weeks. I use that word interesting um, rather morbidly perhaps because obviously it could end up going back into a peak, you know, the second peak, so to speak, which is what's happened in pandemics beforehand. Really what I wanted to focus on in today's episode is slaughterhouse workers, but I do think it's important to talk a little bit about what maybe might be happening over the next period of time um, and what that will look like. So we'll get into that, but before we do so, I just want to say a couple of things. Firstly, a big thank you to all of you who have started listening to the podcast recently, who've maybe started listening because of the videos I put up with Dr. Gregor or Mike the Vegan. If that is the case, and thank you so much and, and welcome to the Disclosure Podcast. Thank you for being here and thank you for joining. For those of you who have listened before and who are maybe regular regular listeners, then uh, welcome back and thank you for all of the, the listens. Um, Big shout out to my patrons. Um, Big thank you to all of you for allowing me to do the work that I do and for supporting my activism and the content that I create. For those of you who like the Disclosure podcast and maybe interested in getting more content that's similar, if you sign up to my Patreon, which is basically a platform where you can support my activism, there is also a monthly patron-only podcast that you get access to. And it's like a Q&A. So rather than me choosing the topics of what to talk about, it is something that my patrons are able to do. They ask me a whole bunch of questions. And then I answer as many of those questions as I can. And we also have a Discord server as well. And Discord is kind of like WhatsApp. It's like a messaging app. There's more to it than WhatsApp, but fundamentally it's like a messaging app. And then my patrons and I, we can chat and help each other out. And it's, it's actually been really wonderful to see how that's grown over the uh, since we started it. And there's a lot of engagement, a lot of conversation in there. And it's been nice to see you guys talking to one another. So if you are in the Discord, then that's really cool. Thank you for being in there. But if that's not something you would be interested in then you can get access to that by signing up to my patron and the second thing I would just like to say is if you have listened to the podcast before and you like the podcast then if you are able to leave a review on iTunes that would be really really helpful and I appreciate it so much I love reading your feedback and it's really good just to to boost the podcast up um, and hopefully get more people to engage with the content within it so thank you so much to all of you for tuning in to today's podcast as I said just a few moments ago there's quite a lot to talk about um, and so I do want to get into that slaughterhouse aspect quite quickly because it is obviously such a hot topic right now and there's so much conversation and it's so important Um, and for those of you who saw my last upload which was addressing an article published by someone called Kay Johnson-Smith on the uh, publishing site Medium, which is where people can can, sub- can submit their own articles, then you'll know that I've already touched upon the exploitation of slaughterhouse workers and what that is currently looking like, particularly in the US. But of course, it's an issue that, that's ongoing outside of the pandemic globally, um, exploitation of slaughterhouse workers. So I've addressed that a little bit, but I kind of want to go into a little bit more detail about that because I think it is an important issue. And I think it's something that as vegans, we should be aware of. And also it's really important to educate people about, especially when you have 
And it is always annoying when this happens, isn't it? When you have people that say, oh, why care about veganism when there's human rights issues? Or why care about animals when the world is still so cruel to, to humans, human animals? And it's such an annoying argument that for, for such a, a wide variety of reasons. Firstly, because you can care about both issues at the same time. You can care about non-human animals and, and human animals at the same time. And amazingly, as humans, we have the capacity to, to help in a variety of ways and we don't have to selectively choose what social justice issue we care about or what system of oppression we want to address also i think it it comes from a place of people being uneducated clearly about what happens within these industries and just how brutal these industries are to humans i mean of course fundamentally we recognize these industries care about profit margins and making money from us and so even though these industries are responsible for causing our leading diseases and illnesses of course heart disease being number one but things like colon cancer kidney disease strokes osteoporosis hypertension all these different issues that result in huge numbers of deaths are contributed to or perpetuated by the products that we eat those mainly being the animal products of course or in many cases solely being the animal products and so there's exploitation just from a consumer level because we're lied to and fed an idea that these products are nutritious and healthy for us when in fact they're killing us. But even added on to that is, of course, the exploitation occurs in places like tanneries and where these workers in places like India and Bangladesh disproportionately have higher rates of many illnesses like cancers. I think 95% of tannery workers, uh, tanneries are where um, animal skin is turned into leather using lots of chemicals, of course. I think 95% in Bangladesh die before the age of 50. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And, and not only that, of course, slaughterhouse workers. And so we'll get into that. But just alluding to what I said at the beginning, I do think it's an interesting time to talk a little bit about what is happening in many countries, not all countries yet, of course, but in many countries, and I guess what we should be wary of. We're easing lockdowns now, and that's good. I mean, for me personally, well, I say it's good, but for me personally, it is getting to that point, isn't it? And I'm sure a lot of you are feeling that as well, where it's really, really starting to take a toll, isn't it? Just the, the lack of um, socializing, the fact that we can't hug people, or, you know, we're certainly not supposed to hug people. The fact that, you know, for me, you know, the diners closed and so that socializing and that community that was always so nice to go and see people eating vegan food the fact that that's not there and there's so many things that it really starts to to bug and and, and kind of eat away doesn't it, over time but at the same time we do have to be cautious don't we and i think one thing i'm worried about now is that with these easing of lockdowns i mean if we look at the u.s it's almost a recipe for disaster isn't it i worry that we're going to see an explosion in, in infections and ultimately the deaths of people and then that could theoretically mean overwhelming of the healthcare systems that what we tried to avoid during the first peak um, resulting in more deaths and all these different problems i mean if we look at the 1918 flu the influenza pandemic which reportedly started on a kansas chicken farm killed up to 50 million people it was the second peak that was the most deadly there not the first one the first one came and went killed a lot of people but the second time it came around the second peak was the most destructive and so there's been a lot of similarities in terms of what's happening now compared to what happened back in 1918 one of the most striking things i think to be aware of with that was it was the cities that eased their lockdowns soonest or had the worst social distancing ended up having the most deaths and so we can look back in time and look at the pandemic that's most comparable to this one although of course there's huge differences and that one was still a lot worse but if we look back and we make those comparisons we can see that we are making some of the mistakes that were made back then but what we have now is you know the ability to have hindsight and look back whereas they didn't have that then and so the mistakes we're making are 
are foolish. And so I think when we what we see in America and in Britain as well is a real negligence in terms of what reopening the countries could well look like. I hope I'm wrong. I really do. But that's my feelings on that. Um, I'd be interested to know what you guys think about it as well. But let's move on um, because I do want to talk about these slaughterhouse workers. And I do think that's, that's a really important topic. As you probably are aware, in the U.S., Donald Trump has enforced something called the Defense Production Act. He did it also for ventilators and for N95 masks. And it basically means that the government enforces facilities or certain industries to operate in a specific way, whether that's to remain open, whether that's to make certain products, whether that's to make sure those products stay in the US. With the N95 mask thing, it was quite a short-lived debacle, so to speak. But what Trump had done is he'd enforced the Defense Production Act, DPA, and it was to stop the N95 masks that were being produced in the US from going to Canada because the Canadian government had ordered, um, I guess, several hundred thousand of them probably. Um, and Trump didn't want that because they were having PPE shortages there. And so he employed this DPA to make sure that they couldn't go to Canada or it'd be illegal for the organizations to send them to Canada, the companies. That got resolved, but it's but it kind of shows you what the DPA means. It basically gives full authority for the government to order industries and companies to do a specific thing. And in the case of what's happened with slaughterhouses, the DPA has been enacted to make sure that slaughterhouses have to remain open to try and stop the potential meat shortages that we keep hearing about. Big problems already with that is that many farmers have started culling millions of animals and so um, there could well be a shortage anyway but bigger than that and more of an issue in terms of human rights and even animal rights perspective is the fact that these slaughterhouses are such hot spots for COVID-19. I mean the animals lose out either way don't they which is just I mean, it's just so unspeakable, even in this time uh, of, of such crisis, the animals get no respite and the suffering that's, you know, forced upon them. It's just true travesty um, and ignored as well. And, and that's one thing that I find really upsetting is throughout all this conversation, I mean, I'm gonna, there is a CNN video and I'm going to make a response to it. Um, but in it, <laughs> this farmer is crying because he's going to have to kill his animals. I say have to, of course, very loosely. He doesn't have to, but he says he has to. Um, and he cried. He's crying about it. I mean, I'm going to go into more detail about it, so I, don't, I won't go into it now, but he's crying. And it's so absurd that we're painting farmers as being victims in this scenario because they're having to cull the animals themselves rather than send them to slaughterhouses to have their throats cut. I mean, Trump's giving them like a $3 billion bailout. So these farmers are claiming, you know, they'll have their insurance or they'll be receiving a bailout from the government anyway. So from a financial perspective, it doesn't really make much difference to them, for most of them anyway, or at least the big ones. Maybe some of the smallest, smaller farms might have more problems from a financial perspective, but the majority of them probably won't. And so all this is a case of is the farmers having to do the work themselves. And then we're supposed to feel sorry for them because now the blood is literally on their hands. The fact that we're painting farmers as victims in this scenario to me is absolutely disgraceful. Uh, it's just absurd. I'm, I'm really, I really do get tired of, of this constant narrative of farmers are the victims. Oh, what about the farmers? Well, I mean, th this is a situation that's been created by the gluttony of corporations and the gluttony of farmers who seek to make money from the exploitation of others. And I'm expected to feel sorry for them because they're going to kill millions of sentient beings. I mean, it's just, it's beyond... <laughs> It's beyond bewildering, isn't it? But with slaughterhouse workers, what we've seen in the US is the fact that these places, these facilities have become such a hotspot for COVID-19. Now, of course, it's not surprising that that would be the case because 
these workers don't have safeguards in place to begin with to protect their health. Slaughterhouses uh, are some of the most violent places in the planet to work. From a physical perspective, they're very dangerous. You know, lots of potential hazards. People have died working in them. People, of course, animals. But people, humans as well, have died in these facilities because of falling in machinery or hurting themselves. But there's a huge psychological burden in place on slaughterhouse workers. I mean, there's a reason why people in society generally look down on slaughterhouse workers. And that's because they do a horrible job. And the irony is we look down on these people because we think that they're terrible people for doing what they do, but we're the ones paying their wages. I've always found that slightly strange how people have such a, a negative view of people who kill animals, but they're paying those people to do it. Now, obviously, back in the day when we hunted to survive, you would kill one animal as a tribe. And so I'm sure for a lot of people that had a psychological consequence on them. But it's so different now in terms of the psychological burden that we put on these workers. I mean, they kill hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands in some places of animals every single day, breaking their necks or putting them to gas chambers, the screams. And now I think it's important to recognize, of course, that when we're talking about exploitation and victims, the true victims are obviously the non-human animals who have no say in what happens to them, who are forced into these environments, who, who are murdered and had their lives taken from them. There's no doubt that on the scale of exploitation and a scale of you know, victimization, they are the ultimately exploited victims in this scenario. But it doesn't take away from the fact that these workers are often victims of circumstance of environment as well. A couple of anecdotes, if you like, that have been quite poignant, I suppose, in my feelings about this. The first one was in Wales. We'd gone to do a, a slaughterhouse vigil in South Wales. I can't remember what the facility was called. I think it was an ABP slaughterhouse. I'm not sure. Anyway, the slaughterhouse kills cows, cattle, and sheep. And there was a worker going in. And so I, I, I stopped him and just said, hey, you know, like you don't have to do this, you know. You don't, you don't need to work here. You don't need to go in. Like This isn't something you have to do. He turned to me and he, and he said, well, you tell me then what, what else I can do, you know. This is a deprived area, which it was. You know, there's there's no job opportunities and it pays well here. You know, I have a family to support. So it's fine for you to say that because you're going to go home and, you know, you're going to have, you know, the choices that you have and live in the life that you have. But it's it's a bit rich for you to tell me not to go in and do this when you're going to leave and, and not care about me. You know, you don't actually care about me because you're just telling me not to go in because I'm doing something that you oppose, right? And that's true. Of course, that's the reason I don't want him to go in. But then I was kind of like a bit stuck because, you know, he's saying, well, okay, you come live in this deprived area, have a family to feed and then tell me that I'm a bad person for doing what I do. And that's really, it's a hard one, isn't it? Because these these slaughterhouses, they're not put in affluent areas, are they? I mean, they're put in deprived areas precisely because people don't want to work in slaughterhouses. It's, it's no one's first choice. People turn to these places because they don't have a choice, you know, because there isn't an abundance of, of places for them to work. And I'm, for some slaughterhouse workers, yes, I'm sure they could find other jobs. But I do think that there are many that would struggle potentially because of circumstance, potentially because of the places they're put in. And the second anecdote proves that point even more was when I was in California two years ago, 2018. Went to a place called Stockton, which is just outside of San Francisco, about an hour drive away. 
bear in mind San Francisco is one of the most affluent cities in the world. It has the highest number of billionaires, I think, in the city. And of course, you know, the, the property prices are through the roof. It's, it's one of the most expensive cities in the world, San Francisco. Crazy. About an hour outside of San Francisco, Stockton. And so we'd gone there to do uh, a slaughterhouse vigil again. There was a, a, a few slaughterhouses in Stockton and we were kind of visiting them all. It was two or three, I think. The first one was this chicken slaughterhouse. And on that day, they were killing, killing egg-laying hens. And it's a terrible, terrible place. A horrible slaughterhouse. We wandered through the area, where the area where the, where the slaughterhouses were. And it is no... It's not an exaggeration to say that this, this is probably the most deprived place I've ever seen in my life. Well, maybe, maybe the second outside of um, places in Asia. But in terms of like somewhere I'd seen in, in Europe or America or Canada, it was by far the most deprived place I'd ever seen in my life. I'd never seen such destitution, such poverty ever. And I it was genuinely shocking to me how horrible these people's lives were. There were heroin needles on the floor. Um, drug paraphernalia everywhere there were these huge expansive areas huge areas that were covered in tents because of all the homeless people who lived there there were people you know with serious mental health problems clearly unable to get any help because of, of course the u.s healthcare system doesn't help in that way clearly you know living just absolutely horrible lives and i i just have never felt so much pity for a situation like the animals, the humans, the whole scenario was so horrendous. And I just couldn't help but thinking about all these affluent people in San Francisco who were going to McDonald's or going to Wendy's, who were going to these places and they were buying animal products that were coming from animals killed in the slaughterhouses in Stockton, killed by people who were living the most destitute lives you could possibly think of someone in, in North America living. Um, so so horrendous and i just i just i that changed a lot in terms of how i viewed this the system because i realized how absurd it was that you have these you know affluent people living in cities like san francisco or london wherever it might be whatever affluent city we're talking about and yet these people often are pointing the finger at poor people because they work in these places you know i had that to me, I, I just, it upsets me greatly because I'm sure that, you know, a lot of these people, you know, as I say, wouldn't want to be in, the, in these environments, wouldn't want to work in these places. But what's the choice, you know, being homeless or taking a job in a horrible facility just so you can afford to feed yourself or feed your family, feed, feed your children, feed your loved ones. You know, maybe you have a sick or ill relative and you need to earn money and you're living in a place where there's nothing apart from two or three slaughterhouses, and you can get offered a job there that pays enough to be able to do that. And then the first day you're going to work, and it's horrible. The second day you're going to work, it's horrible, but a little bit easier. 50th day you're going to work, not great, but significantly easier, and you see the the benefit in terms of your own personal life, and so you start to ignore the consequence. Now, that's an important point to hold on to, because I actually wanted to, to just talk about that. There was um, this study that was done, um, on slaughtering animals looked at I think it was 13 slaughterhouse workers in South America if I believe um, and I just wanted to read the the findings 
from this study um, and then also read a little bit about what some of these slaughterhouse workers said. And this is the findings. I think it was 13 slaughterhouse workers in, in Brazil, and they were basically just tracking their mental health and how they how they were getting on. It said, from the data, we sense that slaughter floor employees go through various stages of adjusting to slaughtering animals in a work setting that's cold, bloody, and smelly. The initial experience of starting on the slaughter floor seems to be inevitably traumatic, eliciting feelings of shock and abhorrence. Thereafter, participants report many disturbing and conflicting emotions, but emphasize how these emotions change, and they start to feel emotionally hardened by the work. Dreams and nightmares seem to occur frequently during the first couple of months, displaying slaughter as subconscious fears and anxieties. When they get more used to the work and the surroundings, they cope in various mental and behavioral ways, although many deny their feelings and revert to substance abuse and violence. Relying on their religious beliefs and activities, as well as finding meaning in being able to provide for their families, brings a sense of purpose and meaning to what they do. The consequences of working the slaughter floor seem to extend not only to the individual, but also to their families and to the bigger community, resulting in domestic and other types of violence and poor interpersonal relations. Slaughterers deal with the fear of social rejection by sometimes withdrawing emotionally or acting out. And so that's the point that I was making. No doubt the first time it must be horrendous. And then over time, you find these coping mechanisms, whether it's drugs or alcohol or repression, which leads to violence outside of slaughterhouses. There seems to be a basic correlation between people being kind to animals, being kind to humans, right? You know? And then if we look at people who are who do bad things to animals, those people tend to be bad people to humans. I mean, a prime example of that is, is serial killers. The FBI states that many prolific killers and serial killers start off by harming animals when they're children. Ted Bundy uh, is an example. I think Jeffrey Dahmer is also an example. And so we see those who harm animals as being bad to, to humans. And so it's no wonder then that if you put someone in a facility where every day they're having to kill human, uh, kill animals, sorry, that well, in terms, sometimes they do resort to killing humans or they resort to being violent, whether that's domestic violence or just violence out in society. It's a terribly corrupt system. And so if, let's look at what's happening in the US right now with this Defense Production Act. So there was one slaughterhouse in Iowa that had, I've got it up here, 58% of the employees at this Tyson meat plant in Iowa have tested positive for COVID-19. Bear in mind, this was published a week ago. So who knows what the, the numbers are like now. There was another place, another Tyson plant. Um, that's the same one. There was a Tyson plant, sorry, in Columbus Junction and Waterloo. The one in Columbus, 26% of employees have tested positive. In Waterloo, 17% have tested positive. There's now over 10,000 cases of COVID-19 within the slaughterhouse industry. Again, this was a week ago. This was published. So with what's happened, you can expect that to be significantly higher now. There's this other article. The headline says, family of meatpacking worker who died of COVID-19 says bosses made him come to work sick as industry hits 10,000 cases. And so it got a complete disregard for life. I spoke about this in a previous podcast. It was about a walkout um, in a slaughterhouse. And the workers were saying how basically the slaughterhouse doesn't care about them getting sick if they get sick they just get replaced it's such a disregard for all life in that sense even these slaughterhouse workers if they get sick they still come into work if they're going to infect other people doesn't matter they still come into work because the bottom line is these companies are protecting the interests of themselves and of the farmers and the usda and you know in the american government doesn't care about slaughterhouse workers they care about protecting the vested interests of the corporations tyson Smithfields, Cargill, and ultimately the farmers, who many are contractually linked to these big corporations. It, it, isn't it strange how 
in society, it's always think of the farmers, like the hardworking farmers, or farmers work so hard. Why is it that we're so hesitant to extend those feelings towards slaughterhouse work? You never hear someone go, think of the poor slaughterhouse workers, you know, they work so hard to feed us. You know, we never hear that, do we? It's always think, oh, the farming families, you know, or the small, small farms with the family farms that really, you know, really look after the environment and the animals and really care about feeding the, the nation's people. And then the slaughterhouse workers, it's like, oh, these are impoverished people and the violent people and who could ever work in a place like that? Anyway, so what we see here in the US is the complete disregard for the lives of the humans in these places. And I think it's a really important point to make to non-vegans. There was a great article and I can't remember where I read it. It might've been in Forbes. I can't remember. It might not have been. And it, the, the journalist was saying that they'd gone into a supermarket, they were doing their shop, and down the meat aisle, they looked at the meat, and they would they looked at it and they just thought, I, I can't, I, I can't buy this. I mean, I'm, you know, thinking about everything that's happening in slaughterhouses right now, thinking about the fact that all these animals are being culled, thinking about, you know, what's happening to these workers. And so the journalist ended up buying the Beyond Meat burgers for the first time, because they looked at the meat and they just said, if everything that's going on right now I do not want to buy this. And they, they did the same. They bought the Just Egg as well. They just said, you know, well, why why wouldn't I buy this? And so they ended up going to the, the supermarket, came home with some Just Egg and Beyond Meat. And I think that's happening with a lot of people. There's a couple of surveys that came out. I don't know the exact figures for the one in the US, although the general trend in the US is more people buying plant-based options. The Beyond Meat shares are skyrocketing, or they're soaring. I don't, I don't know if that's the correct term, skyrocketing, but they're increasing. They were, I think Beyond Meat released their quarterly, the first quarterly report for 2020, and it was good. You know, compared to what most companies are having to go through, it was good, and so you know that boosted their stock up. But in the UK. There was a survey done, it said that 20% of Britons are reducing their meat consumption and 15% of Britons are reducing their dairy and or egg consumption. They broke that down further and so about half of the people were doing it because of lack of availability on the shelves, which is, you know, understandably not the most, um, which is annoying, right? But at the same time, the good thing is with the lack of availability, they may well be buying vegan products instead and, and learning that they like them. But importantly, the, the other half or thereabouts half were were buying them because they uh, cared and had learned about what's happening to animals. You know, there was the environmental, the animal rights, and I guess probably pandemic-related issues as well. So that would mean, therefore, if we take the, those figures and we say 50% of the 20% and 15%, that's still 10% and 7.5% of people in Britain reducing their meat and dairy and egg consumption because of issues related to animals, the pandemic, and the environment. And to me, I think that's I think that's significant. Remember, 10% is the tipping point that we hear about all the time, don't we? 10% of the population is the tipping point. And if we have 10% of people who are making changes, I mean, not fully to vegan, although, of course, I'm sure many of them will do that, hopefully all of them, but 10% is the tipping point. And so that's really, really important. And so I don't think we can disregard the good that's happening. And I think the thing with slaughterhouses is pushing a lot of people because there's that human rights aspect that's really been exposed, I think, for the first time. I mean, we know about it. People can probably guess that, you know, it's not good for someone's health and it leads to alcohol and drug dependency, often suicide. But now we're hearing it on a mainstream level. This is what's happened to slaughterhouses. They're being forced here. They have no choice and they're dying because of it. Couple that with the fact that, you know, it was because of what we do to animals that we're in this situation to begin with. It's so absurd. Everything that's happening is crazy right now. 
they're just with figures released in the UK today saying the official death count is actually over 40,000 just in the UK alone. And every single one of those 40,000 people has died because of what we do to animals. And on top of that, people are di- more, more people are dying all the time because of what we do to animals. And that doesn't even take into account all the people that die from heart disease because of what we do to animals or having strokes because of what we do to animals. It's, it is so absurd to me. And I just, I'm really, I'm really hoping that with everything that's happening right now, more and more people are making that change. I just, I, I do think we should talk about these issues um, related to the slaughterhouses. Um, it just, it's just yet another point to add to the absolutely bewildering situation that we as a species have created for ourselves. And the fact that we're pointing to these wet markets in China is saying, oh, it's terrible what they're doing to animals there. And yet what people are doing to animals in this country or in the US, wherever, is causing them PTSD, right? Drug and alcohol dependency, suicide, leaving them to be violent to their partners, violent to their families, violent in society. Some of them have gone into slaughterhouses. There was a case in 2012, I think, where some a slaughterhouse worker walked into a slaughterhouse and shot like four or five of his, his co-employees there, his co-workers, and oh, the report said, oh, well, you know, he seemed like a very nice person, didn't really, you know, we would never have guessed it, but he must have just been harboring all this hate and anger within him because of what he was doing every day. And he must have seen all his co-workers doing the same thing and felt angry at them for doing it and angry himself. So he goes in and shoots them and tries to kill himself because all he's seen is these people committing acts of violence every day and it builds violence up in him. Uh, it's just, it's it's such a, it's such a horrible thing, isn't it? The system. I, I, I'm really hoping that this will, will help it crumble and be pushed along. The meat shortages thing is interesting. I know that um, Senator Rubio, um, who was once a presidential, potential presidential nominee um, back in the 2016 election, he has said that a lot of Americans may have to go vegan or may have to go partially vegan because of what's going to happen. One thing that we always want, isn't it, is people to try these options. And because of what's happening, I guess many people will have to try these options. That can only be a good thing. I mean, no one picks up a Beyond Meat Burger or a Beyond Sausage or, a, you know, or has a coffee uh, with oat milk, right? No, no one has these things and, and doesn't think that they're not nice, right? I've never met anyone who's who's had like an Oatly coffee before, Um and has gone home and said, oh, you know, that was horrible. But no one's had like a really good Beyond Meat burger and said, oh, that tastes bad. Like, that just doesn't happen. And so we want people to be buying and eating these products. And this is a situation where people will be doing that. It's a small, it's a silver lining um, in, a, in, a, in a situation that is so entirely terrible um, and entirely, you know, destructive. But I can't help but feel that it is something that can bring about a huge amount of change and it's always hard, isn't it, we talk about these issues because I think with the slaughterhouse workers, I don't, I really don't want to ever create the impression that you know our biggest sympathy should, you know, sympathy should be with them. And I know that they do the thing that's terrible. You know, they do the actual act that's terrible. But it's 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 the consumers and it's the co- the corporations and farmers that have the blood on their hands. You know, the most amount of blood. And I think that's something we should always be very conscious of there's a whole supply chain and each element of that supply chain is culpable but when you have an environment where these workers i mean for example there was a guardian article and you'll know about this if if you watch my my recent video where the workers there said that they feel like they're being treated like modern day slaves and i think that's a really apt way 
of talking about their situation, they're literally forced to work there now, aren't they? If they don't work there, then they have no job. If they have no job, they can't pay for their water and for their electricity and for their food and look after their families and their mortgages or their rents. And then they, well, they're going to go homeless. I have their children taken away from them. You know, I just, there's a couple of reports I've been reading in, in America of utilities companies cutting off people's electricity and water because the stimulus package the US government was giving them, it given them, didn't get to the, some of these people in time to pay their bills. And so the utilities company canceled their bills. There's one family I was reading about, he got his stimulus package, he then paid his outstanding bills. And then the utilities company said, oh, well, you'll need to pay us another $80 because we had to cancel it and we're having to start it again, like a, re like a renewal fee or whatever. Well, for what? Turning on their water again? And this is this is a family that have got, who've been given $1,200 to feed them for the re remainder of this whole situation. And now the utilities companies wants to take another $80 away from them, nearly one twelfth of their entire stimulus package just to reconnect the water because it got turned off temporarily because they had no money because they were unemployed and waiting for this stimulus package. And so... I think these people saying that they feel like modern day slaves is actually a very apt comparison because they're, they're forced to work in a very dangerous, a very violent job. And although, yes, they're getting paid for it, if they didn't do it, then they wouldn't be able to support themselves and they would lose homes, you know, water, electricity, food, all of these things. I mean, that's slavery, isn't it? That's, that is slavery right there. Um, again, the non-human animals are the slaves but that is, it is another example of slavery within that system. I thought that was a very powerful, powerful statement for that worker to make. And I really hope that that gets through to people. That when, you know, a lot of us, we're not having a great time. And I, I was saying before, I'm not having a good time in this lockdown. And, and, and it is having an effect that's not positive on, 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 on all of us. But at the end of the day, we're not forced to work in these environments. And, you know, a, a lot of people are outside of slaughterhouses. I know that a lot of people are now with the lockdowns being eased. But for many of us, we're not in that situation or we're in a much comparatively safer situation. I just hope that for the people that go into Whole Foods or Tesco's or wherever it is, and they're complaining about how terrible lockdown is while buying a chicken breast or a piece of steak or a pork chop or whatever it might be, they just think for a second about how utterly horrendous the system that created that product is on every single level from the bailouts the government gives let's just just remind ourselves that you know the the u.s government is saying no we can't give people this money and we can't furlough them or we can't do this we can't pay for people's health care but then every single year tens of billions of dollars is given to farmers to subsidize an industry that uh, shouldn't exist rather than going to people in poverty to help them get out of poverty, to create infrastructure, to provide opportunities for people, to provide jobs for people, to provide healthcare for people. No, 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 we don't have enough money to, to help poor people, but what we have is enough money to pay farmers billions of, of tax subsidies every single year, and not only that, bail them out when they struggle. Do you, know what, do you know what's the most bewildering about this piece of legislation, this bailout, or any bailouts for that example, is that socialism, right? And, you know, Trump's always against old anti-socialism, anti-socialist. It's just deeply ironic that Donald Trump has implemented a socialist <laughs> piece of legislation to bail out these farmers. It's just staggering to me, isn't it, the world that we live in sometimes, just how deeply absurd it is. Anyway, I will 
probably wrap it up there for this week's podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. It's been a bit rambly, Um, but also important. I mean, the reason I made this podcast, and like I said, I've said a couple of times, if you've seen my latest video, you'll be aware that I responded to this Medium article. And it it got my back up a little bit because the article starts off with this woman, Kay Johnson-Smith, who's CEO of something called Animal Agriculture Alliance in the US. It starts off by her saying that animal rights activists are exploiting vulnerable people because we're talking about the correlation between exploiting animals and infectious zoonotic disease. And it's not just us, is it? It's journalists, it's infectious disease experts, scientists, leading scientific organizations and health um, orientated organizations, the United Nations, WHO, loads of companies, people, scientists are talking about this. It's not just animal rights activists, but of course we're being very vocal about it. Um, as we are obliged to do because it's something that's so important. And the fact that she said that that means we're exploiting vulnerable people because we're saying, hey, we should look at how we treat animals and the correlation that has two pandemics and epidemics. I thought that was so sick, particularly because of what's happening right now. And for her to say that we're exploiting vulnerable people while she's representing an industry and is a figurehead in industry that is creating modern day slaves. Another thing that's worth mentioning about this defense Production Act is that it removes liability for these companies. So beforehand, when these companies had the option to close, um, had the option to implement safeguarding measures, but but didn't do so when they forced, like we saw, like I mentioned in the article before, when they forced workers who are sick to still go to work, the liabilities on them they can be held accountable. But now, because Trump's mandated this through the DPA, they can hold their hands up and refuse to take accountability. And so for every person who dies or for every infection, you know, for every person who gets infected and who then spreads it to their family and their loved ones and who may consequently die, these slaughterhouse corporations have no liability on them. They can get away with anything they want now, forcing people to come into work sick, um, not creating even remotely adequate scenarios or safety uh, protocols, which of course would be redundant anyway, but not even implementing anything, not even trying. They basically had all the accountability removed for them and so they can get away with doing anything. They can get away with murder in every sense, murder of the animals, but also murder of these humans as well, because they can just hold their hands up and say, well, you know, we were told we had to, what choice did we have? And so Trump, by doing this, has also given a free pass to these corporations. By the way, these are the corporations that have been lobbying for that $3 billion bailout. And and, of, and let's just remember that the reason why this is happening is for the meat shortages because farmers want to put their animals through slaughterhouses. So again, it's because of the farmers. The farmers are getting bailouts. They're being paid billions of dollars because they don't want to kill the animals themselves. But then the slaughterhouse workers have been forced to go to work, but they're not getting bailed out for the fact that they're having to go to work. They've been forced to do so. These farmers are getting bailed out because they're culling animals on their farms and so they don't have to lose money. It's just... I really am tired of this narrative. I really am going very tired of it because it's so deceitful and disingenuous. Um, But yeah, it removes liability from these corporations. And another thing that's important to note is that Tyson have been withholding information, have been withholding data about the actual number of infections within their plants and probably deaths as well. We know that Tyson haven't been forthcoming and you can guarantee Smithfields and all the others haven't been forthcoming as well. In my last video, the one that I've referenced a few times now, I talk about how Smithfields in the past have been found falsifying documents and illegally tampering with records. They were fined $12.6 million by the Environmental Protection Agency for dumping things like cyanide and ammonia and fecal matter into local rivers and into the environment. 
So these companies are not good companies. And so you can be absolutely 100% certain that they're not being forthcoming about what's actually even happening within these places. And so if we hear figures like 10,000 infections within slaughterhouse workers, you can guarantee that that's more. Absolutely. They're not going to be forthcoming about it, especially not now. But there's just no liability. And it doesn't matter how many die, how much suffering is involved, there will be no liability. Um, and that's really sad. It's very, very sad. All right, guys. Well, let, let, let's let's look at wrapping up here. Um, like I did say before, we know a lot of us are, are coming in and out of, of these lockdowns now. So do please make sure to still be safe. Please do make sure to still be looking after yourselves, looking after those around you and uh, looking after your mental health, of course. Um, but thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. And I look forward to speaking to you all um, in the next video or in the next podcast. But until then, look after yourselves, stay hopeful. We will get through this one way or another. Um, and hopefully through us and what we can do and sharing articles and sharing conversations about these correlations, fingers crossed we can make sure that something like this doesn't happen again in the future. That would be, of course, the most beneficial thing that could come from this is making sure we learn from our mistakes. Um, and so I think we all have a responsibility in, in making sure that does happen, or at least contributing to a world that's more likely to happen, learning from our mistakes, that is, um, by sharing, by talking about it, by interacting with people. So just find them. I mean, there's, there's so many articles now online, The Guardian, New York Times, Washington Post, even The Independent, even The Daily Mail, actually, that's what I was thinking of. Even The Daily Mail have, have had conversation. I mean, actually, a couple of the headlines that I've, I've read out in this are from The Daily Mail. So have a look online for something, have a read through, find one that you think talks about these issues and share it online and try and generate some conversation with people if you can. I think that's a wonderful thing to do. Um, and hopefully, as I say, it can contribute to making sure we enter into a post-pandemic world where we try and learn from these mistakes as much as we can. All right, guys, thank you for listening. Stay safe and we'll speak again very soon. Mm -hmm.